our choir in December. I've been here for many years, and the music of our Christmas musical in December was the most outstanding, incredible worship that I've been a part of since I've been here. It was amazing. And, and they carried it over this morning, so thank you. While you're turning there, some, I, I want to uh, share with you just something off the top of my head that we talked about in Sunday school this morning. I don't know how close you're following the news, um, but this has really struck out, stuck out to me in the last few days. Um, a few years ago, some of our largest Southern Baptist churches began to make a concentrated effort to send missionaries into the nation of Iran. Now, to send a missionary into the nation of Iran is one of the most difficult challenges that anyone would face, um, and those missionaries are not known as missionaries as they go in there. But one of the largest revivals that is happening in the world today is happening in the nation of Iran. Uh, thousands and thousands of people have converted from Islam to Christianity in the last several years. If you're watching the news, you're seeing now that thousands and thousands of people are in the streets in Iran protesting about government abuse and government waste, but also asking for religious freedoms. Now, I've watched the pundits for the last couple of weeks try to explain politically what is going on, but I know spiritually what is going on. And I know that God is in control. When you pray for this nation, you pray for the nation of Iran, you pray for, at some point, we know that there will more than likely be a brutal crackdown on those protesters. But we also know this, any time that there's ever been a brutal crackdown in the history of the world to stop the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what happened? It exploded. It explodes exponentially. So you pray for those people who are protesting for some of the freedoms that you and I are able to enjoy here this morning. You pray for God's hand to be on those missionaries that have been sent from some of our churches uh, to the nation of Iran. Pray for their safety and pray for their courage to continue and for God's hand to continue to move. When is the last time that you received a letter that was handwritten or that was written in such a way that was eloquent and that was that caught your attention and that got to the point and you read that letter and it made you want to read that letter twice. Probably then a, it's been a long, long time, hasn't it? How do we communicate now? I get text messages constantly all day and those text messages most of the time make no sense because they're abbreviated and the things that I don't understand and know and, and most of the time, I, you know, you read them once and you, and you look at them and it just doesn't leave an impression on you. There was a time in our world where letter writing was an art and where it was, it was something um, that people took great pride in. I, am, uh, I realized this morning sitting here, I've got to register for seminary classes tomorrow that begin on Tuesday and I'll be in discussion boards and writing papers and I'm amazed that as I'm in discussion boards, people who graduated high school, got through college, and now are on a master's level reading discussion boards that people wouldn't know an Oxford comma from an Oxford yellow jacket. And, it just been, and, and that joke just went right over y'all's head because y'all don't know what an Oxford comma is. I'm a stickler for those things. But one of the great, I'm a history buff. 
And one of the great letters that I've ever read was written in 1940, and it was written from Winston Churchill to President Franklin Roosevelt. Neville Chamberlain had been, um, had been the Prime Minister of Great Britain before Churchill, and he had a policy of appeasement. And because of his policy of appeasement towards Hitler and Nazi Germany, many nations, Poland, Norway, the Netherlands, and Belgium, had fallen. He had not prepared Great Britain for war, and now Churchill is looking out and seeing that war is coming to Great Britain and that they're not prepared and that they're going to suffer greatly because of this. So he writes an urgent letter to Franklin Roosevelt. America had taken a stance of let's wait and see and see if the French are able to stem the tide that is coming of the Nazis. So Churchill knows in his heart that that's not going to happen, so he's preparing. And he writes this beautiful letter, but it's also urgent and to the point. I want to share a part of it with you this morning before we uh, look at... It says this, most secret and personal, President Roosevelt from former naval, former naval person. Although I've changed my office, I am sure you would not wish me to discontinue our intimate private correspondence. As you are no doubt aware, the scene has darkened swiftly. The enemy have a marked preponderance in the air, and their new technique is making a deep impression upon the French. I think myself the battle on land has only just begun, and I should like to see tanks engaged. Up to the present, Hitler is working with specialized units in tanks and air. The small countries are simply smashed up one by one like matchwood. We must expect, though, it is not yet certain that Mussolini will hurry in to share the loot of civilization. We expect to be attacked here ourselves, both from the air and by parachute and airborne troops in the near future, and are getting ready for them. If necessary, we shall continue the war alone, and we are not afraid of that. But I trust you realize, Mr. President, that the voice and force of the United States may count for nothing if they are withheld too long. You may have a completely subjugated, Nazified Europe established with astonishing swiftness, and the weight may be more than we can bear. All I ask now is that you proclaim non-belligerency, which would mean that you would help us with everything short of actually engaging armed forces. Eloquent, to the point, urgent, a plea. Bree sometimes uh, would, uh, ask me in the morning, did you see what the president tweeted this morning? And I'll say, yeah, I did. And it's kind of scary. But we lived in a time, one, once upon a time, we, we lived where people communicated eloquently and urgently, and they got their point of cross, and people responded. We know that the response from Roosevelt came later, but it was, it was a dark time in history, and Churchill knew that someone had to intervene or Europe would be lost. There was a time centuries before where the Apostle Paul knew the exact same thing. The Apostle Paul had established a church at Ephesus that was the beachhead and the command center of reaching Asia Minor with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men had come into the church at Ephesus and they had begun to teach and to preach a gospel that was contrary to the gospel 
that Paul had established there in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul is sending a young man in the ministry named Timothy there to Ephesus, and he is giving him a great charge, a great task to do. He's sending this young man to confront a group of people who are much older than him and to tell them that they have to stop teaching what they are teaching. And so we read this letter, we read these first few verses here together this morning. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul knew how to communicate. Paul knew how to get uh, the attention of people that he was writing to. And he writes a letter here, the great magnitude in its urgency for the defense of the gospel and the continued spreading of the gospel. He introduces himself in verse number 1 as having apostolic authority. And he reminds Timothy that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ and that he was chosen directly in the presence of Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, he introduces himself in that way, not secret and personal in the letter that we read from history, but he lets everyone there in Ephesus know that I am the representative of Jesus Christ, and it means you have to listen to me. He addresses Timothy quickly. He says to Timothy, I'm writing to you and to you specifically for you to do this thing. Normally at this point in Paul's letters to the other churches at Philippi or to Colossus, he would have wrote an eloquent thanksgiving for that church and the work that they were doing. He would have written great things about how proud he was of them. Even to the church at Corinth that he was writing a letter to and, and kind of getting on to them, he bragged on them at the beginning of the letter for the things that they were doing right. But not so here in this letter that he's writing to Timothy. He doesn't give that thanksgiving. He gets straight to the point because it is dire to him that these things stop. As I said, he views Ephesus as the bulkhead, the place where the gospel has to be established for that gospel to continue to go through Asia Minor. Earlier, Paul had written to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, verse 25 through 31, he warns them of this very thing that was going to happen. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Just five short years after he wrote this, uh, or he spoke this to the Ephesians, this warning has come true. Now Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to deal with this problem, and Timothy has to succeed. Timothy is going to war on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ because the spread of the gospel depends on what Timothy does 
here with what Paul is instructing him to do. And Paul gives him specific directions. He tells him specifically how church should be conducted and in the order that it should be. And in this letter that we know as 1 Timothy, he's giving a battle plan to someone who had been a young soldier, and he's telling him, you're, not long, you're no longer just a young soldier, you're a general now. And I'm putting you in charge, and you're going with my authority, and you're going to straighten this out because the gospel depends on it. So Timothy here has to do exactly what he's told. Now Paul doesn't name the false teachers, but they're very well known there in the church. We know from history and what scholars have written that they're the elders there of the church. Some scholars tell us that these false teachers were telling people that they had to discover certain hidden knowledge and that they had to worship angels, which was completely contrary to everything that Paul had established there. I can remember when I became a Christian, I had groups of people that would come and they would talk about these great mysteries that weren't in the Bible and these things that I, I had to discover and, and had to seek out on my own. And I, tr I, I soon understood that I better read the Bible every day and if it's not there in the Bible, I better leave it alone. Fierce wolves. Now, later on in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he would describe a day that was coming where people wouldn't listen to the gospel anymore. He says this in 2 Timothy 4, 4, that people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Where is that day? <laughs> we live in that day. We live in that day. Now, you, Michael, you, what, you're talking about doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is simply the belief in what we teach. What we teach as being the truth of the gospel. Doctrine is simply believing what the Bible says and teaching that and teaching sound doctrine. The church now in America has drifted so far away from the search and the truth of doctrine that it amazes me. I haven't been a Southern Baptist all my life. I've been in Southern Baptist life for about the last 22 years. Some of you have been in the Southern Baptist church 75, 80 years. When I first started going to Southern Baptist churches, I first became a member of a Southern Baptist church. I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus first. I chose Southern Baptist because I studied the Bible and it fit most well with what I believed as a Christian. Now, still to me, the gospel of Jesus Christ is first and foremost, not what the Southern Baptists always have to say. Now, when I first started attending Baptist churches, I would hear preachers from the pulpit talk about how we had slid as Southern Baptists and how we had, how we had begun to decline in, in teaching doctrine and how we had become to... In their, in their time as being ministers. And, and, they were, and I didn't really realize that because I'd only been a Southern Baptist for a little while. Now, having been in the Southern Baptist Church for the past 22 or so years, and having been a seminary student, and having been a pastor of a church, I can tell you that I will echo what those men say, and I can tell you 22 years later, it is amazing to me how far we are sliding from doctrinal truth. 
and how far as Southern Baptists we are going away from some of the basic things, basic beliefs that we had, and, 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 and it, it amazes me. One of the, here, here's what has amazed me since I've been a pastor, since maybe since I've been on staff here, for the last several years, or maybe for the last 10 to 15 years, we have spent more time in our churches fussing over what we're going to sing, and we haven't talked about doctrine, and we haven't talked about what the Bible teaches. Those things aren't important. We're fussing over about what we're going to sing. And while our local churches have been having this fuss, some of our seminaries, some of our Southern Baptist seminaries have flooded our churches with five-point Calvinist pastors who basically don't believe in evangelism and don't see it as truth and who also at Lifeway and in some of our main leadership places, they, these people are there now, and we're so busy fussing about whether or not we want to sing the old rugged cross or hill song that we don't even realize that those things are happening. And our churches, our churches are so, we are weak. We are weak in sharing the gospel. We are weak in evangelism because these things are happening. Two of our seminaries are in a huge, have been for several years in a huge debate over this issue. But our churches, and when I say that, most people sitting on the pew are like, well, that doesn't matter to me. I don't, I don't even know what that is. It does matter to you. It does matter to you. Because you're going to have children and grandchildren, hopefully, who will attend church, and you want to know that they're being taught correct, correctly, and they're being taught correct doctrine. I thought about this, and, and, and Bree, I brought this out to Bree. The church has always longed for heaven. The church has always been a group of people who were longing to be with, with Jesus. Brief has uh, brief follows a story on um, on uh, uh, on Facebook of a family, um, a minister in Oklahoma whose family has suffered great tragedy in the last six weeks, and they have suffered tragedies after tragedy, and yet they still continue in ministry. And I told her as she began to. Uh, Talk to me more and more about that story. I said, now there's a family who understands what it is to long for heaven. To long to be with Jesus. We have become a church now who ascribes to the notion that this is our best life now. Bring your bell with you. Best life now. I'm going to tell you something. If this is your best life now, if this is your best life now, then your next life is hell. If this is your best life now, your next life is hell. Because this is not my best life. My best life is coming when I get to be with Jesus in heaven. And we have become a church. We no longer talk about the soon returning, of, the, the return of Jesus. We no longer talk about the second. Because the world looks at us and thinks we're crazy because we believe in a rapture and we believe in a second coming and we believe in a millennial reign and we believe all those things. And I'm saying things that most of you sleep through Sunday school and don't hear. But I want to tell you, I believe those things. I'm, I'm longing for those things. And our churches are no longer eagerly awaiting those things. And we don't want to hear those things. Because we live as if the accomplishments in this life are greater than the reward of heaven. We're so worried about what we're going to accomplish in this life and what we're going to heap up for ourselves in this life. What did, what did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, what? 
Yeah, lay up your treasures in heaven. I ain't got much here. He's coming back. I ain't got much here, but I tell you what, I got some treasures in heaven. I, 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 and I, I'll take that back. I have a lot here. If you live indoors and you can flush a toilet, you're rich. As I've been where they can't. And I want to tell you something. If you are a young person here this morning, and you feel that God has a call on your life, if you feel that God has a call on your life for missions, or for, or for uh, to go to seminary, or to, or to become a minister, if you feel like God has that call on your life, I can recommend books for you to read. Really good books for you to read. But I'll tell you this, this better be on your lap every single day. This better be on your lap every single day or you will be pulled in directions that you don't know which way are going and you'll be swayed by every, every wind that blows. You better know this Bible. Amen. Now, here's why it's important. Paul knew that the conduct and administration of God's church was most important. Because here's what Paul knew. If the church is living the way that it should, then the gospel is going to spread. If we're teaching what we should teach, and we're teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's a simple formula. The gospel is going to spread. Now, this understanding leads Paul to a positive uh, reason and a command for the false teachers to be stopped. Because Paul says this, and it's, it's the thrust of our message this morning. He says, the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now here's what Paul says. He gives us three steps here for, for what has to happen. First of all, Timothy has to put a stop to the teaching of the false doctrine. Timothy, your charge is that they are teaching something that's not in God's word or they are twisting God's word you have to put a stop to it. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do as a minister is to go to a Sunday school teacher and to say, what you're teaching does not line up with the Bible, it's not scriptural, and you have to stop. It's a hard thing. But they were told, Timothy was said, make them stop teaching false doctrine, lead them back secondly to sound doctrine, and here's what will happen. It will restore love to God's people. Now that's an unusual concept when we think about love. When we talk about the emotion of love, we don't connect it to what we teach and what we preach in the church. We connect it to other emotions and other facts. We rarely ever look at it as this concept of, of sound doctrine will equal love. Well, let's flesh it out a little bit. This love that Paul is talking about here is this. It's a love for God first. And then it's a love for those around us. It's the love that was expressed in the Ten Commandments. And it's the love that Jesus proclaimed in, in Matthew when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
Jesus said, love God first and love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. If you do that, you're going to be able to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor more than yourself. And if you do that, then through your love, you prove every commandment that the prophets ever spoke of through your love. Paul says that you have to know these things to see these things. John Piper said it this way in our day and time. He said, love is the overflow of joy. But love is the overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. When, we, when this happens, the administrative administration of God by faith goes into full gear. John, and Jesus said it this way in John 13, 35. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Does that mean that we're always going to like everything that everybody does and, what, and how people act and what? No. But it does mean that no matter what, we have to love them. And they have to love us if we claim the name of Christ. Now, there's three things here that I want to touch on, and I'm going to touch on them briefly. Most of you are sitting there thinking, Lord, he's been on the introduction for 20 minutes here all day. I promise we'll be, we'll be brief on these. Number one in this, what he says leads us to love is a pure heart. A pure heart is one that's not filled with sinful desires. Jesus said this in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.8. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The heart that is pure is a heart that's focused on God. The heart that is pure is one that is focused on God and what God has for them in this life. Paul knew the Old Testament well, and he's probably, as he's writing this, thinking about David in Psalm 86, where David said to God, You not, you not my heart to fear your name. Or Jeremiah in chapter 32, when Jeremiah was talking about the new covenant that was to come, and he, God said this, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Think about that, what he said. Not just for our own good, but the good of our children after us. It's important. It's important how we do this. So it just doesn't affect us now. It affects our children and those who follow later. It's a purity and it's a focus and it, it, it brings love from our hearts when we're focused on God this way. A pure heart. A heart that's showing love to other people. It's evident in people's lives. I see it when I go on mission trips with, with people and I see these shy people who I've never really seen them or heard them say anything or be really demonstrative with their faith. But I see them get on a mission field and I see them see the need for the spread of the gospel and I see a love that uh, pours out of their heart that comes from spending time with the Lord and seeking after the Lord and the Lord gives them the opportunity there to share that love 
and to share that love in a way that leads people to Christ. Then secondly, Paul says, a good conscience. A good conscience is one that's not heavy with guilt. Here's a good, uh, here's a good measure for a good conscience. Can you lie, cheat, steal, and be disobedient and not be bothered by it? Because if you can lie, cheat, steal, and be disobedient and not be bothered with it, you've got a serious problem with your conscience. God gave us a conscience to be bothered by those things. It's our inner awareness of the quality of our own actions. The, uh, in the biblical culture, it's also the sense of, of our moral actions as part of the church. A good conscience sensed inner moral approval from God and God's people. And such a good conscience, when we have a good conscience, it grows this, it grows joy in our heart that's unmeasurable. And when we have that joy for others, we have love, we, when we have that joy, we have a love for others. Good conscience equals joy, and joy will equal a love for others. This is how I knew one of the, one of the main ways that I knew when I was, when I was younger. I can honestly point to parts, to points in my life where nothing bothered me. Where no part of how I was living and no part of the way that I was living in rebellion toward God and no part of the way that I was living and how other people were being hurt by how I was living, no part of that bothered me whatsoever. The only thing that bothered me was that if I didn't get to do what I wanted to do or if somebody got in my way of doing what I wanted to do. One of the first ways that I knew that God had changed me and that I was being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit is this. I began to be bothered by anything that I did that would hurt somebody or that would offend God. And I knew that the Holy Spirit was working in my conscience to point those things out to me. And I can tell you that that brought joy to my heart and, and probably brought great joy to my parents' heart. But it... It, it brought that joy made it made e me even more aware of the fact of God's love and how that love needed to be shared with other people. So he tells us a pure heart, a good conscience, and then a sincere faith. Faith. A faith that is not pretense or hypocrisy. Literally what Paul is saying here is that this is a faith that has no hypocrisy to it whatsoever. The way some people live has no relationship to the faith they declare with their lips. Paul says sincere faith means a faith that is really there. A faith that can't be hid. A faith that other people will see and know that you're living that way and that there's no alternative life for you where you have, a, you have God in a compartment where you go to church on Sunday or you come to church on Wednesday and then you put God in a compartment and then you live other ways than what you say you live on Sunday during the week or at other times. Paul says that this is an, a, a, a faith that can't be broken apart. And he says that this faith is a faith that will join naturally with love. 
In fact, in First and Second Timothy and in the book of Titus, Paul will link faith and love together eight different times. Eight times he will put the two together. So, he tells us, he tells Timothy, he says, your job is to go here in this difficult place. I can't be there, but you can. To go into this difficult place, you're to straighten this out, and you're to tell these people that their aim and their charge is love. How many people do you know in this lonely world that need love? This is a lonely, lonely world. No, I, I don't care. I, you look around you, and everywhere you look, you see loneliness. We're the most connected people. I'm connected with people through technology all over the world. But yet, we live in a world where we're, we're so connected, but we're disconnected by human touch. We're disconnected of emotion. We're disconnected of any of those things. And it's a lonely world that needs love. And Paul says to Timothy, this love is great, and this love, will, this love will help the spread of the gospel. So when you're going there, Timothy, and you're doing this hard thing, and you're straightening out these things, realize that at the end of this, what you're teaching is going to be a love that is established and will cause this church in Ephesus to grow and explode and to spread to the rest of Asia Minor. So here's where I want to get to is this. Here's where I want us this morning to take away from what we've looked at in Scripture. These are three things that I want us to concentrate on over the coming year in 2018. And I want us to be aware that the end results are what Paul is talking about here the end result will be a spreading of the gospel. First of all, is to learn. First of all, is to learn. What do you want us to learn? I want you to spend as much time as you possibly can learning more about the truth of the Scripture. This January the 1st, I took my Bible and I took an app on my phone and I sat down with that app and I started reading this Bible through again. And here's what, here's what I know. I taught a Sunday school lesson this morning from Acts chapter 16. I've probably read Acts chapter 16 at a minimum. I've read it a dozen times. But reading Acts chapter 16 and preparing to teach, I learned things that I had not seen before. And I learned things that God, God showed me things through the reading of that scripture and through the following of, of it and, and tracing it out. I learned things that I hope will help me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus. So I want us to learn. Today is what? January the 7th? If you haven't started a Bible reading plan, it's not too late. Go and find one. And, and it might take you 30 extra minutes for seven days to get caught up completely. But then become, and you're, talk, and, and you're thinking, man, I, I don't want to read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and the Song of Solomon. And I'll, I'll read them. 
Read, find one where you read four, from four different sections of the Bible every day so that while you're in Leviticus, you've got some stuff over in the New Testament that helps measure all that out. But be a student of God's Word. I want us to learn, and I want us to grow, and I want us to concentrate on our discipleship and on our ministries there that help us to grow and help us to grow deeper in what we know and what we believe. And then second, I want us to listen. Not listen to me, but I want us to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit through what He has to say to us through prayer. I'm going to begin next Sunday a, sermon, a, set of, uh, a, a series of sermons about prayer and fasting. I've been reading and studying and praying about teaching this for some time now. And I truly believe and I know in my heart from, what I, from my experience as a minister and as a Christian that everything begins with prayer. And everything, every great work begins with our being on our knees and, and talking to God. I hope I can get this right in my head because this was my thought as I was, as, as I was uh, going to bed last night. I have no right to ask God for anything. But I have great reason to ask God for everything because away from God, I can't do, well, nothing would be bad there. I can't do anything. I have no right to ask God for anything, but I have great reason to ask God for everything because apart from God, I can't do anything. So as we pray, I want us to listen. I'm going to lay out some things next week, next week in more detail, but I want us to be a church to where we spend some time significantly not just what we call a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, but significantly through the week during the day of people being here in this altar or being in a prayer room or being in other parts of the church and vocally lifting their voices to God and praying, but most importantly, listening to what He has to say to us in response. Learning, listening, and then finally, loving. Loving in such a way that Paul is talking about here from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Loving in such a way that the people around us and in our community would know that we are genuine in our faith and what we say by the love that they see us demonstrating to other people. And the love that they see us sharing with other people. There's, there's a gentleman that's here today been visiting our church for, for a little while, and he told me, he, he wanted to come by and, and, and see me, and he told me, he said, I want to tell you why I'm here in your church. And I said, okay, I want to hear it. And it wasn't because he saw a sign somewhere, it wasn't because of a slick marketing ad, ad campaign or anything, it was because a man in our church saw his son on the side of the road and knew that his son needed help, and a man in our church stopped and went out of his way to help that young man and to get him where he needed to be and spent extra time with him making sure that his needs were taken care of. And it made such an impression on that young man's father that that young man said, that, that father said, i got to go and check that church out and see. Those are the things those are the things that we need to be about. Sharing our love, showing our love, sharing our faith. 
And I promise you, just as Paul sent Timothy there, and Timothy corrected these problems, and he began to teach these things, what do we know happened? From that church in Ephesus, we know that there was a great spread of the gospel into other regions and other areas. And we know that because of not just the church at Ephesus, but the other churches that were established, we know that through the love that they showed to other people and the love that they gave, and the way they gave their lives away, the way that Jesus gave his life away for them, we know that the gospel spread to everywhere that they knew about in that time. So, takeaway is this. We live in a world where it's important to know what we believe and to teach that way because we live in the time that Paul described to Timothy where people won't sit and listen to the truth but they'll go and they'll heap up to themselves somebody who will tell them what they want to hear. And we live in that day now. And we know that it's important for us to do these things and for us to, most importantly, grow in our love because of it. Now, who's with me? Three of you. We're going to do great things, you three people. I promise you. I hope you're with me, and I hope that through this coming week you'll read this, you'll pray about this, and we'll practice these three things so that the gospel of Jesus Christ will be spread to this community. And that as we have people who get on planes and go places around the world, that they'll go with hearts that are just busting and can't wait to share the love of Jesus. And that they'll come back here so full of the Holy Spirit that they will take over neighborhoods in this community sharing the gospel for Jesus Christ. That's our charge. That's our aim. That's where we're headed. That's what we want to be about. Stand with me and pray. Father, it is with great hope and anticipation that we come into this place today and we look. We look and we see a need. And we look and we need and we see a place where the gospel of Jesus needs to be on every street and in every house. Father, give us the opportunities this year to learn, to listen, and to love in such a way that we spread the gospel dramatically. And Father, I pray and I ask this morning as we speak, I pray that there will be people who will surrender this morning and say, I want to live this way with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith because I know that it will work in the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be first and foremost what's on our mind. And Father, I pray this morning sincerely with all my heart and I ask you for the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and to point us in that direction. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to know, maybe you have a conscience that's guilty and heavy and you want to lay that down. This morning would be a wonderful time for you to come and say, I want to know Jesus and I want to know the freedom from this sin, the freedom from this life, and I want to follow him for the rest of my life. Maybe you've been struggling with baptism the way that uh, Kristen was this morning, and you want to make that right, now would be a perfect opportunity for you to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.